This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The new president will enter office, and among the many challenges, well, there's ISIS and there's Syria. We've had a chance over the last 15 years, not a happy opportunity, but an opportunity nonetheless, to learn a lot about how terrorism and insurgency um, operate. And in a sense, that period has allowed us, at least as scholars, to understand many of the components that fit into what ISIS is doing now. And so what I'd like to do today is um, try to take a look at the problem that, that is ISIS with the spe- perspectives that we get from a decade and a half now, studying Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine, Lebanon, a lot of other troubled places. And some of you look a little familiar, so maybe you don't need this background, but let me, let me give it to you anyway. I'm not your grandfather's economist <laughs> in the sense that um, before I became an academic, I had a misspent youth running up and down hills in Lebanon as a, as a scout in the IDF. Um, and so before I became a social scientist and tried to... The IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. Before I became a social scientist, I spent quite a lot of time um, trying to figure out how terrorists and various types of rebels thought. Now, this, of course, was be- before al-Qaeda was a going concern and certainly before ISIS and before even there was a Hezbollah. And so um, over that period, both as a soldier and as a scholar, I spent a lot of time thinking about these problems. Um, Along the way, that um, having become an economist and gone to do, you know, work that made my mom much calmer, (laughs) (laughs) sitting in an office dealing with the graduate students and the undergraduates, teaching a lecture now and then, staring at the ceiling, um, uh, I was very happy being a labor economist. And then September 9-11 happened. We lived in Houston at the time. And the, um, the police called. Called the, the, the day school that my, my kids were in. They were in a Hebrew day school. And they said, um, call all the parents. We have to evacuate the children. This was on the day of 9-11. You remember the panic of the day, maybe. And um, they said, well, why? I said, well... We have no idea how big the problem is. We can't protect all the high towers in Houston and all the Jewish day schools. And so call the parents, have, bring the kids home. Now, as, as an Israeli, I'm Israeli-American and Canadian. We can talk about this in question period if you like. As an Israeli, I knew that that was the wrong answer. That um, distorting our lives, twisting our lives out of shape as a response to terrorism, is exactly what makes the people in the caves chuckle in delight. But nevertheless, they closed the school. We had to go pick up the kids. <laughs> we weren't going to leave them on the sidewalk. And so that, for me, started maybe a trip backwards, using the tools that I have as a social scientist um, to try to understand um, what we were doing in Lebanon, what we're doing now in Syria, what we've been doing in Afghanistan, what we've been doing in Iraq. Along the way, I've had the, the, really the privilege of working with a research team that we call the Empirical Studies of Conflict, 
which is a coalition of researchers here at UC San Diego, also at Stanford, at Princeton, at the University of Chicago, where they have a new center on, to, to study conflict, and folks at the Hebrew University, the London School of Economics, a group of people that are very, very focused on try, trying to take the model, modern tools that we have in empirical science, economics, political science, and apply them to understanding these problems. And so I'm going to show you some of that today, and we're going to use maybe as a hook and as a focus um, this problem of what you do about ISIS. Now, let me take, so that's the, I gave you maybe a soldier's perspective. Why was I running up and down the hills and why chase the bad guys and do all those things? Let me take you over for a different perspective, which you're also going to find useful, I think, which is the perspective of, of a development economist. So that's also a hat that I wear, development economist. What's development economics? Well, you go, you go to the most miserable parts of the world where people are poor and women are dying in childbirth, and you ask, what can we do to help? And um, what we usually do is we design programs, health, pro health interventions, uh, training interventions, sometimes quality of governance, inter governance interventions, and we try to make people better off using the tools that we have. Often for economists, that means trying to make markets work. Um, to reduce corruption, to make sure the roads are paved, the things that allow villages to become towns, to become cities, to prosper. Now, if you take a look at where we do development interventions today, you'll see that this is a map of spending by the, by the World Bank. And what you'll see, that the darker the blue, the, the higher the levels of spending per capita. The map for USAID and the map for the British equivalent, DFID, is very much similar. And what you'll notice is that, yeah, the, most, the poorest parts of the world are covered, but there are also some parts of the world that are covered quite extensively with development assistance that are not the poorest places in the world. You'll notice that we're, still, we're spending a lot of money in Iraq, even though it's actually a middle-income country, a lot of money in Mexico, which is a middle-income country, a lot of money in Colombia, and you might ask yourself, why do we do that? A lot of money in, even in, in Egypt, whereas the poorest people in the world and really the, the people with the lowest life expectancy, the most miserable children, the most miserable parents are in sub-Saharan Africa. So why are we spending in all these other places? Why don't we spend all the money where the people are the poorest? And the answer is, well, we try to do development assistance where countries are not only making themselves miserable, but they're exporting problems for the rest of us, which would be drugs from Mexico and Colombia, terrorism from Iraq, Syria, um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, places like that. Now, and that brings up a problem which dovetails with the other problem that I want to talk to you about, which is that when we try to put development assistance in places where people and property are not safe, then we often run into the problem that we can make things worse as well as better. Why? Well, it turns out that when you put something of value in a place where people fight over things violently, um, often in the good case, in the best case, the rebels say, imagine, you know, trying to take care of the problems of, um, of Raqqa, currently the capital of ISIS in Syria. Well, yeah, the, the women are die dying there in childbirth. The children are miserable and not well-educated. Health is not being provided, the elderly are not being taken care of, the disabled are probably forgotten. And so we would like to help those folks, but if you try to 
deliver development assistance to a place where people where 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 there are rebels in charge of any type, then what they typically do is they grab the 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 assistance, they relabel it as theirs, and they use it to buy the and to buy the the hearts and minds we like to say of the people that live there, which might not be what we wanted to do. That's the bad. That's the good case. In the bad case, fighting breaks out using small arms or improvised um, explosive devices or even artillery over the aid assistance and then the team of doctors and nurses maybe gets kidnapped and the special forces go in to try to rescue them and if we're then we're happy if we get the doctors and the nurses and the special forces out alive and nobody goes back to ask if the mothers are still dying during childbirth and so what I'm trying to say is that for development economists as well as for people who are worried about terrorism and insurgency, um, there's really kind of one big problem, which is the badly governed places. Those chaotic, badly governed places not only are spreading misery for the people that live there and making it difficult for us to help them, which we would otherwise do, but they're also exporting misery you know, to Paris and to Berlin and to San Bernardino, and to Orlando, and, uh, and you know, God help us, another 9-11 to Manhattan. And so how do we deal with those problems? How do we deal with the places that are making not only the residents miserable, but us miserable as well? And there are kind of two answers to that. There's a conservative view, which is popular among some economists, who would say, well... You know, people where, places where people and property are not safe, we don't know a lot about them. Almost nothing that we know about economics applies there because markets can't function. So all the wisdom that we have dating back to Adam Smith really doesn't apply. Adam Smith was writing about a place that was relatively well-managed, well enough managed that markets could function and things could be made better. And so maybe we should just leave it alone. Now, the problem with that view is that According to our estimates, something like one and a half billion people live in places like that. Maybe not as bad as war-torn Syria or the parts of Iraq that are currently um, that that are currently suffering conflict, but places where corruption, mismanagement, um, petty crime, kind of mafia-style governance, um, really uh, controls the streets. One and a half billion people. There are only seven billion of us, more or less. One and a half billion living in places that development assistance doesn't really work well in and that are, have a potential of exporting terrorism and insurgency to the rest of us. That's a serious challenge. That's a challenge that's worthy of our time, I think. Now, there's a more activist view that says, well, maybe we should just go in anyway and do the things that we usually do, inoculate the children, help the women with childbirth, educate, and what bad, what bad could happen? And the answer that we know now, having studied Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and, and, and Lebanon intensely, is that lots of bad things could happen. The bad guys can grab the rents. They did say the, the, the political and the economic value of the goods that you're providing. And so you could be entrenching the rebels, whether you like them or not. And worse fighting could break out over the thing that you just provided. 
And we have lots of evidence that this isn't just some story that the researchers made up. Um, we've got documented evidence now in published papers in the best journals, journals in the world by our team of places in the Philippines, for example, where some villages get a program and some villages don't get a program. And the villages that get the program, and it's pretty arbitrary who gets it and who doesn't, the villages that get the program have fighting break, break out, not when they start building the thing, but on announcement that money is going to be flowing into this place. That's how bad it is. And when I talk about fighting, I mean fighting in which people are injured and killed, including civilians. Okay, so the activist work view isn't really going to work for us. The conservative view seems ethically unacceptable to us to leave one and a half billion people behind. And remember, when you leave these people behind in a place like Syria, which has open borders to Turkey, which has open borders to Europe, you're basically inviting a flow of refugees and problems, perhaps, into Europe itself and onwards to us here in the United States. And so what do you do? So what we try to do is invent something new, which is an approach to dealing with economic development and security at the same time. And until recently, we had no idea how to do this. Um, I think with, with lots of goodwill and good intentions, um, the American military and the full coalition went into Iraq, into Afghanistan, and then into Iraq with the idea that we were going to develop the economy and provide security at the same time as kind of a nation-building exercise. It's been partially successful. Life expectancy has actually increased in both of those places. But for the most part, um, Iraq has been stabilized, but not all of it. Some of it's controlled by ISIS, and that ISIS control eventually bled into Syria. Afghanistan is about half controlled by our allies, and about half controlled by the Taliban and a whole bunch of other lawless elements. And so, you know, if we had to give grades to these things, Iraq is kind of a B minus, and Afghanistan is maybe a gentleman C in terms of an effort that's cost us at this point trillions of dollars and um, thousands of casualties of Americans thousands of casualties of coalition forces, tens of thousands of deaths of Iraqis, Afghans, and other people that happen to be there. And so the answer is we're actually not very good at this. Can we do better this time around in Iraq, Syria? And the answer I'm going to give you is yes, but we would have to do a number of a lot of things right. And this is policy relevant today, this week, because the new president is going to have to make a set of decisions about what to do in Syria in particular. And so let's talk through this. Now, in order to talk through it, I'm going to be an academic. I'm going to zoom out and generalize. So we're going to talk about how terrorism is different from asymmetric conflict, is different from symmetric conflict, just so we can get the, the ideas organized. Then I'm going to tell you about some evidence about all these things, that I'm not just making this stuff up as I go along. After that... You, you chuckle, but you, <laughs> the undergraduates don't, but you're older. <laughs> then I'm going to show you some conflicting results, some conflicting empirical results. And we're going to try to make sense of them. And then we're going to come back to this question of how you design programs to work in places that are cursed by conflict. Can those programs, if you do them right, actually change the attitudes of locals, people, towards 
the government that we're trying to help there, that might be our allies, say the Iraqi government, or it might end up being the Syrian government, depending on who our allies end up being. And then we're going to come back to this question of ISIS terrorism and what exactly all this would mean for how to solve Iraq, Syria now in 2017. So this empirical studies of conflict database or base of wisdom that I'm falling back on, what is it? Well, it's a group of researchers who've applied academic standards of proof. That is to say, you have to prove it either with data or with argument, breaking it down all the way to equations and proofs, lemmas and, and theorems and corollaries, all that stuff, right? That standard applied to research in all of these countries, all done over the last six or seven years by my team. Now, that includes all types of those of you who are connoisseurs of research, observational research on data that we kind of, that we acquired, uh, that somebody else uh, gathered, um, randomized control trials, that's to say trials in which we randomly assigned some treatment or another to one group of people and not to another group of people and see how they respond, original surveys of our own design using methods that had really never been used before to try to get people to tell you the truth about what's going on in their village, even when that village is racked by conflict and is controlled by a bunch of nefarious, nefarious characters um, at night when our survey team goes home. All of that in all of these places, um, including lots of, uh, lots of trips and lots of evidence gathered and um, lots of Ellie sleeping with a cell phone at night beside the bed, wondering if all the research teams are okay, and including a lot of trips by me to, um, to the most exotic of these places, which is Afghanistan. What I can tell you, based on all of that research, is the following kind of complicated table. Ah, but we have complication, but we also have the cure for all complication, the laser pointer. <laughs> okay, so... What I mean, what this table is trying to say is the following. There are three types of conflict that we should be thinking about here, and it's important to distinguish between them. The thing that we're exposed to here, here in the United States or here in the West, is international terrorism. Right? ISIS does international terrorism. Al-Qaeda does international terrorism. If you spend time in Israel, then you also have to deal with Hamas and with Hezbollah. Uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a whole bunch of groups like that. That's a type of conflict in which the team that's attacking, the terrorists, if you will, are much, much weaker than the government. They don't aspire to control the territory. They, they, they can only weakly aspire to get the government to change its action in any way. Mostly what they can do is generally generate some, um, is, is, is draw the attention of an audience to some terrible thing that they do and, and, and attempt to get that audience to pressure the government to do something, right? And that would be Orlando or San Bernardino or the 9-11 attacks here in the United States. That's very different from asymmetric civil war. Now, an asymmetric civil war is a war in which the government is stronger than the rebels, but the rebels, if they are very skillfully, skillful tactically can convince the government to go away and leave a neighborhood alone, even if the government is stronger. How would they do that? Well, that's what I was doing in Lebanon, actually. When I wasn't chasing the, 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 uh, the Fatah terrorists 
up and down the hills. Mostly what I was dealing with was the Hezbollah insurgents, rebels in an asymmetric conflict. My team, the Israel Defense Forces, together with our allies, the South Lebanese Army, controlled the roads and controlled almost everything by day and controlled the airspace totally. But at night, um, the population was often on the side of these other folks, so that at night what they could do was sneak up and set bombs by the side of the roads. And then when my patrol came through in the morning, um, if we didn't know about this explosive by the side of the road, our jeep could be blown off the road with everybody in it. And, and so in order not to get our jeeps blown off the road, what we would have to do is every morning, on every road that we cared about, we would have to go out in the morning and walk down that road and poke at the things at the side of the road and hope they wouldn't explode. And so, even though the Hezbollah in South Lebanon did not have the ability to control the territory by day and could not ever control the airspace, what they could do is try to scare us off the roads. That's what um, al-Qaeda Iraq was doing to American forces in Anbar. Um, that's what the Taliban does to Afghanistan, Afghani forces today and did to American forces and, and NATO forces in general. What they try to do is through ambushes and explosives set at night, take control during the day. And so they, they, unlike these folks, the terrorists, the insurgents in an asymmetric civil war can aspire to control territory if they can scare the government away using roadside bombs and ambushes. I'm going to come back to that case in a moment. Now, that's also different from the third thing, which is a symmetric civil war. In a symmetric civil war, there are two forces of about the same more or less capacity, and what they do is they just attack each other like in a large country-on-country war. So just like in the Second World War or even in the American Civil War, there was the North and there was the South, and they would almost arrive at prearranged places, and they would fight with each other, and the side that had the more resources and maybe was better at strategy and tactics would win. That's a symmetric civil war, and whoever wins, wins the territory. Now, why is it important to distinguish between these? Well, because the role of the way that you fight these things differs dramatically. The way you win a symmetric civil war against a strong enemy is, well, you bring more forces to the field. And 90% of what the American military is designed for is that. Right? And so if the American military ever had to confront the Russians or the Chinese, um, they would bring a big force and we would bring a big force and we would fight it out. It would be a terrible thing and hopefully we never have to do it again. But that's what we're built for. We're built for winning the Cold War or World War II again. The way you win international terrorism is actually much, much different. There, what you try to do is gain information about where the terrorists are going to strike next. And once you have that information about who the terrorists are or where they are or what it is they're trying to attack, then you go and you find them and you dispose of them. And because we're so much more powerful than they are, all we need is the information and then we're done. Now, how do you win an asymmetric civil war? This is me walking in, patrolling the roads of South Lebanon. Well, there, it would be great to have information from inside the organization, but that's usually very, very difficult to get. 
But what you can often get is information from civilians who live along the road. So think about this for a moment, and this is the, the key to understanding everything about, everything, 90% of what we need to know about Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Along that road, there are houses, and in those houses there are people, and those people are civilians. And if the insurgents try to set an ambush or try to set up a roadside bomb in the middle of the night where those, insurgent, where those civilians live, they make noise. And if they make noise, then the civilians hear it. So imagine that you're a civilian, and you're woken up in the middle of the night, and you go and you open up the shutter and you look through, and you see that there's some, there's some motion out there in the street where there shouldn't be at three in the morning. And now you have a choice to make. Today, in the day, it, this used to be harder. And it was actually harder for us in Lebanon than it is today in Iraq for American forces or for Iraqi forces. Today, what that civilian does is they pick up a cell phone and they stare at it and they say, who do I want to win the confrontation that's going to happen in the morning? Do I want the side to be blown off the Jeep or the Humvee by that bomb that those, that those, things, that those folks are setting? Do I want the ambush to succeed or do I want it to fail? And that's it. A mom or a dad with a cell phone in their hands can decide what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Tremendous power is given to these civilians because they have information which, if they report it to the tip line, will make sure that the patrol will be safe and that the folks that set that IED or the folks that are waiting there to, um, to ambush the patrol will basically be, they'll, they'll, they'll be cornered and captured. That's what controlling South Lebanon was all about. That's what controlling Iraq is all about. That's what controlling Afghanistan is all about. 90% of what you need to know is right there. It's mom at the edge of the bed, peeking through the curtain with a phone in her hand and making a decision. That's it. And so what's important about asymmetric civil war is that the civilians actually decide who wins. Now, it's really an empowering thing to get to decide who wins, And you have to remember that we're talking about civilians who are probably disenfranchised to start with. Why did the rebels take control of South Lebanon or of Western Iraq or of Southern Afghanistan? Because the government, the people that lived in the capital, weren't doing a very good job of controlling the territory themselves. And why did they not control the territory? Well, because they didn't care about it, and they didn't care about the people that lived there. And if they ever had an election, they didn't care how they voted. And so suddenly, things are flipped. This mom, who was disenfranchised before, is now empowered. She gets to decide who controls the neighborhood. And so from this, um, I've talked about the types of violence. I've talked about the risk. Well, I should talk about the risk to civilians. And I'll just stick with the asymmetric civil war for a moment. The risk to civilians is high here because there are people fighting over things right on the streets where they live. The thing that, that the government wants from the civilians and the thing that the rebels don't want the civilians to share is information. It's all about whether she calls in the tip or if she's worried about talking to you loud, she texts in the tip, that mom. Okay, symmetric conflicts, those are intuitive. That's, that's what... It, many of you would remember will remember from past wars, um, but for the development team, they're really irrelevant because 
in symmetric conflicts, the thing that the civilians provide is resources. Taxes and young men and even young women to go fight. But because the fighting takes place on a front, the way that we do development assistance behind the front is standard. It's what we always do. We make the markets work and we educate the kids and we inoculate them and on we go. And I mean, I'm not saying that it's simple, but it's a solved, it's very much a solved and well-studied problem. Here, it's a very different type of a problem. Here, what you have to do is you have to convince the mom with the cell phone at the edge of the bed in this asymmetric conflict that she wants your team to control the neighborhood. Ah, so what you have to do to buy the assistance of that mom, and moms are smart, right, is you have to provide, do a better job of providing the set of services that she cares about than the rebels do. So that's actually a very constructive kind of a conflict. Because what it means is that there's a government, and there are rebels, and there's a civilian population. Here's mom at the edge of the bed. She could provide a tip that will allow the government to go find these guys. And then the patrol will not be in danger the next morning. Or she could not provide the tip, and the patrol would be doomed. Okay, so what does she care about? Well, we've surveyed moms on this, and dads, and village elders, and everybody else, anyone else who would talk to us in Afghanistan and Iraq and Colombia and lots of awful places, including the Palestinian territories. And we know what they care about. They care, first of all, about personal security of them and their family. After that, they care about dispute adjudication and justice. These are places where it's really, really important to be able to decide um, these things that sound kind of biblical and quaint to us but are, are matters of life and death for subsistence farmers, which is, if the goat crosses from my farm into your farm, how do I get my goat back without starting a vendetta? After that comes education, including maybe even of the girls, health, infrastructure, and if they're really lucky, representation. And if the government does a good job of providing these things, the tip will flow and all will be well. The rebels, though, aren't stupid. What they will do is they'll try to provide these same set of services because that's much cheaper than actually trying to take on the government head on. And so the Taliban in places that they're active will provide personal security and dispute adjudication and maybe even some education. And if they can, they'll capture the team from Médecins Sans Frontières and they'll force them to provide the care. Or they'll allow them to provide the care. And infrastructure representation they're not so good at, but if they're good enough at these things, they can win the village. And in southern Afghanistan, our allies, the government of Afghanistan, do such an awful job that often the Taliban win at this competition, which is really a benign competition, even a constructive competition, but they win at it. And if they win at it, the patrol would be really very ill-advised to try patrolling that street. So the answer is the patrol has to win the moms over before it can try to win the street. All right, so the implication here is, is profound. In these asymmetric conflicts, it's not a choice between security and services. You want to provide services, the same set of services that would allow you to develop the, the economy, the health and the markets and the representation and the dispute adjudication, all those things that we're used to in our lives, you want to provide those things and you also want to provide the security and they complement each other. If you try to do one without the other, it won't work. 
You can't provide the set of services without sending a patrol because all that will get captured and maybe destroyed. You can't send the patrol without providing the services. You want to do both. And the single biggest mistake that we made in Iraq year after year after year was not trying to do both at the same time. Same with Afghanistan. In Iraq afterwards, when we left, we left an ally in place where we said, now, you know, Mr. Maliki, you should really do both these things, the security and the services at the same time. And if you do, you won't have to worry about the al-Qaeda Iraq folks. And Maliki said, sure, I'll see ya. And uh, he took his Shia majority militia army, retreated to Baghdad, and Anbar turned back this time to ISIS, which ISIS is just the grandchildren of al-Qaeda Iraq. It's the same people. And so you've got to provide both, the governance and the security. So I got piles of evidence about spending. and You spend more, the violence, gets, the violence declines. That's what this says here. More spending on this program called SERP. These are uh, small programs, small development programs run by the American military in Iraq. And I can show you evidence on Afghanistan. It works the same way. As long as there's enough security in place, development assistance is violence-reducing in these places. And that's almost everywhere and almost always as long as a small number of conditions are followed. Number one, the programs have to be small. Number two, they have to be conditional. That is to say, the mom has to understand that if the tip flow stops, the program stops as well. It's an awful, brutal thing to say but it has to be that way because without the tip, there won't be security. Modest, secure, conditional. Let me stop at that. And, oh, informed. They work better if there's a development professional on the site in making sure that the program that you're delivered, delivering is not only of high quality, but also is the thing that the village wanted, the thing the mom's actually asking for. So we're famous for going in and building big water treatment plants and four-lane highways in places where what people really wanted was for you to dig a well or to make sure that the kids are safe on the way to school, right? By not being aligned with the priorities and not doing it in the right way. When you do that and you build these big projects, you end up spending a lot of money on extra security because the bad guys come and enjoy destroying the big projects and it makes everyone look stupid, except maybe the bad guys. I'm just showing you lots of graphs so you get the idea. There's lots of evidence here. Um, you could see the slides later. Or I'll show you where you can read all about it. Now, so what works when you run these programs? And these are the programs that we would advise people to run in Iraq, Syria, when the territory is regained. Modest, I said, secure, informed, and conditional on security cooperation. When we do those things, we get dramatic reductions of violence, and um, in a way that's tremendously cost-effective and keeps our own troops safe. Now, there's a whole research agenda here about how you carry these programs out in places where the government is corrupt and the contractors steal and it's unsafe. And I'm not going to go into the details. Let me just say that there are 10 or 20 examples of doing this successfully, even in the face of rampant corruption, the kind you would find in Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere like Syria. We can work with NGOs who work with communities who make it possible. Another place where we have a pile of evidence that's really quite supportive is the Philippines. Now, the Philippines is in the news these days 
because of uh, their new president is the closest thing to a fascist that we've seen in generations in this world. Nevertheless, in the background in the Philippines, even under other governments, there's been a long-standing uh, insurgency, a rebellion, not so much in the capital up here in Manila, where many of you might have been, but down here in the peripheral parts of the country. And actually, this map here, which is somehow cut off for some reason, um, this is a heat map of violence per capita in the Philippines. And what you see is that down here in the south in Mindanao, there's active terrorism and um, rebellion going on. There are development projects run by the Philippine military everywhere where there's a green dot, including in neighborhoods even up here around Manila. Okay? So much of the Philippines is actually contested. It's a wonderful place to do research because the rebels are relatively friendly. If they catch you, they usually kidnap you. They don't kill you. And, um, and they, they age out of rebellion very, fairly quickly. It's hard to find a rebel there in his 40s. And once they age out, they'll sit around with you and they'll drink beer. At least the Christians will. And they'll tell you about their stories. The Philippine military are also predisposed to sit around with you and drink beer, especially even before they hit their 40s. And so we've had a wonderful time drinking beer and studying programs <laughs> in this part of the Philippines. Down here, there's a Muslim majority, and it's a little less, um, it's a little more awkward. Um, but even there, we've managed to do a lot of great research. The story that I told you about the development program triggering violence actually came from a program that was run in this part of the Philippines. And again, um, it's, this isn't anecdotal evidence. It's statistical evidence based on thousands of applications of programs to different villages. What I can tell you there, also for the, for the Philippines, and this is the only military in the world that's shared with us their full counterinsurgency plan, this plan, the Green Dots. So they had a plan in which in any given year a full 2% of the population was treated. 15% of municipalities in the Philippines were treated. 12% of the population was actually conquered or reconquered during the sample period. Each green dot was a village that was reconquered. And you might ask, when the village was reconquered, did the mom make the right decision when she decided to share the tip with the Philippine military rather than let the rebels retain control? The answer is this. These are malnutrition rates among children, children aged 0 through 4, in the periphery of the Philippines. And what you see is, if a village is reconquered in this year by the Philippine military, malnutrition drops, 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 and then levels out to a rate which is about 40% lower than it was before. Which is to say, you can improve nutritional status of Philippine kids. Kids who need the improvement most, and at ages where these interventions matter the most, you can get an improvement of about 40% by actually reconquering the village. And so sometimes you might think that the government are on the bad side, and certainly the Philippine military is no stranger to human rights violations of the most awful type. But um, in the case of the Philippines, the rebels, who are either kind of neo-communists or Islamists, um, are so much worse that the kids and apparently the rest of the family are way better off under the control of the government. This is the only place in the world where we have evidence like this. So let me take you to Syria. This is Iraq. Here's Baghdad. 
This is Syria. Here's Damascus. Right? What you're seeing here on the map, the color shows control. Okay? So this dark reddish. These are areas controlled by ISIS as of the end of November. I looked really hard for an updated map. And actually, this is a pretty good map. Um, The only thing that it misses is this area around Mosul, where the green, which is Iraqi military forces, with the assistance of our own special forces and American, and American troops at this point, <coughs> is moving into this red in the area around Mosul. Here's an updated map of Mosul from, a month, from almost a month ago, from December, and you can follow this one on the news. The Iraqi army is pushing green into this red area just south of the city here and is still contesting the area approaching the river. Now, this is symmetric warfare, and so as long as Iraqi forces keep pushing, they will win. There's no doubt about this. Now, what else is going to happen here, though? And how did ISIS take control in the first place? All right, so here it's really valuable to know that there are three different types of conflict to keep track of. There's something symmetric, which is happening on the line where the green reads the red, and by the way, also on the line where this... uh, this bluish, the bluish is Syrian military forces, Syrian government forces, who just retook Aleppo, remember? Now, here there's bluish, and now these pur- the purple are all the other rebel groups in Syria, which would include the rebel groups that we're backing, the Free Syrian Army, and also a whole bunch of other rebels that are very, are very worrisome to us, the Al-Nusra Front, which is allied to al-Qaeda and a dozen other groups whose acronyms are hard to keep track of and who trade um, soldiers, cadres all the time. And so the Syrian government is slowly, is slowly squeezing ISIS in this direction and, this, and the Free Syrian Army and other rebel forces in this direction. And it looks like with the backing of the Russians, they're going to take this area back and they're probably going to take this area back as well. So they're going to control most of the population of Syria once that's done. Iraqi forces are pushing this way, and this light, purplish, movish thing, what's that? Those are the Kurds. Um, These are Kurd forces in Iraq, where they're basically running an autonomous state with a capital here in Kirkuk, and when they take back Mosul, it'll be majority Kurd, most likely. And these in Syria are also, this is, these are also Kurds. These are Syrian Kurds. And the only real problem here with allowing, well, there are kind of two problems. And the, the Kurdish forces are pushing south in all of these places. And there are only two problems with the Kurdish forces pushing south. They're wonderful allies for the West, except for two things. The two things are? Turkey. Yeah. Number one, the Turks hate this idea because they have their own Kurdish minority, which has been running an asymmetric civil war against Turkish forces, which, which, which has bled into terrorism as well. The other problem is that these, this, this Movish area that, I, that I'm showing you that's now controlled by Kurds is far larger than the areas that are traditionally Kurdish. And so the Kurds are pushing into areas which are traditionally not majority Kurd, they're majority Shia and Sunni. And so when the Kurds push ISIS out of these areas, 
It's Kurds pushing Sunni populations south out of their villages or promising to govern them. And the same actually is happening one slide back over here. When um, Syrian military forces are pushing Sunni rebels out of these purplish areas, it's um, Sunni, the Syrian military forces are a coalition of uh, Alawite, who are mostly, you could think of them as Shia, um, Druze, Christians, and some other minorities. Okay? Now, they're all minority groups within Syria, but um, taking over territory from what's actually the majority group population-wise in Syria, which are Sunni. And so this green force and this blue force are non-Sunni minorities pushing a Sunni majority out of its territory. And this comes back to the question that was asked back about 20 minutes ago. Is it necessary that the ruler of the, of the country be of the same ethnic or religious group as the, as the people that are being conquered? And the answer is, well, that's not possible. And so now, why is this also important to us? Because we have to make a set of, the American government has to make a set of decisions about what to do next in this place, in Raqqa. Eventually, this area around Raqqa will fall. It could fall in four different ways, right? ISIS will be defeated in a conventional civil war, in a, this thing, the conventional rebellion, because as a symmetric force, it's just too weak. They don't have enough resources to put enough forces in the field to win. When they lose, what's going to happen? Well, it depends who they lose to. If here in Raqqa they lose to the Syrian government, then the Syrian government will then be faced with an asymmetric insurgency that might go on for generations. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, what do we care? Well, refugee flows, human misery. We're talking about at least 5 million displaced people already, at least 2 million of them outside of Syria. Right? And then um, another, we don't know, maybe another million internally displaced that, we're not even, that are not even being tracked in massive refugee camps here in Lebanon, here in, here in Jordan, in Iraq, in Turkey, and within Syria itself. So the, the toll in human suffering could just continue. Alternatively, they could fall, it could fall to a group of fighters who are our allies, the Free Syrian Army and a whole bunch of folks like that. Unfortunately, they haven't done a great job, those folks. And so, and, and, and we and our allies haven't shown enough commitment to that group to actually help them out and out succeed. When I say we and our allies, our allies in that thing would have to include the Turks and the Iraqis, if not also some kind of an understanding with the Russians who are sponsoring who are the mentors of the Syrian military, and the Iranians, who are also the mentors of the Syrian military in this thing. Okay? And so some understanding among the great powers in this area, including really Israel, has to be arrived at before one can figure out how this purplish area and this reddish area will be controlled. Could be Syrian, I said four ways. Could be Syrian, it could be the rebel forces, it could be the Kurds, 
But that's a very bad idea for the two reasons we said a moment ago. It's not Kurdish territory, and the government of Turkey will be very, very unhappy about that, and will do something, though we don't quite know what. Or they could fall to some other worse group than ISIS. Right? They could fall to something like Al-Qaeda. Right? Which is what ICE, the kind of thing that ISIS is when it doesn't have a lot of resources. And now why is that a problem? Because as long as there's perp- dark purple area or red area, then terrorists can train. And as long as terrorists can train, we face a threat here. So how to think about this and how to think about Raqqa? Right? Raqqa will fall. The question is, after Raqqa falls, what happens next? Is the fall of Raqqa going to be like the fall of Anbar? Where we had it, there was a turn, we had an ally in place, we went home, and it became chaos again. And after that, we had Paris and Munich and Berlin and San Bernardino and Orlando. Right? Or is it going to be a place where there's an ally who sticks around and governs and makes sure that bad things don't happen anymore. Um, So to make sure, we would have to do a number of things. One is we would like it to be an ally that it falls to, an ally who's more compliant than, say, Maliki was. We gave him Anbar, and he decided not to keep it. Right? The other possibility is that it's an enemy that controls Raqqa. Maybe the Syrian government would be that enemy. Not always exactly an enemy. They have an embassy in Washington, but not a particularly friendly government. Um, If it's that enemy, then they would now take responsibility for making sure that refugees stop flowing out of this place, which means it has to be governed well enough, even though they're Shia or they're Alawite, and the population is Sunni, that refugees are happy enough to, to go home and the terrorism stops flowing out of that place. Right? That's possible, but it's only possible if you have an agreement with everybody, with all the neighbors, the Russians, the Turks, the Iraqis, the Iranians, um, Israel, uh, the government of Syria. And so the question, and this is really a serious question, for the Trump administration and for the Assad administration, right, Now that Aleppo has fallen, and Idlib will eventually fall, these things will happen, right? What's going to happen to this area here? Who's going to govern it? It's not just Raqqa, which is the capital. This isn't like the War of 1812 where the British raid and they, they burn the White House and then they take off. That's just symbolic. It doesn't matter whether Raqqa falls or not, as long as this area is still controlled by a group of people who can harbor terrorists and make individuals who live there so miserable that they want to leave. You need a stable ally in this area. And I'm using this map because this is the map that shows you how much of this territory is Sunni majority. The 10 is Sunni majority. And so what we need is some kind of a solution for Sunni majority towns and villages and even cities in this part of Iraq and this part of Syria It's not impossible to have these multi-ethnic states, but they have to do a good enough job of the governance that it doesn't export terrorism and, uh, and insurgency and the misery of refugees. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.